There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Good morning. It is Thursday, 28th of September. On the Michael Reed Show this morning, delegates of the Gala Representative Association vote for strike action on the 10th of November and have warned that other members of the force may follow. A third of people with dementia don't have access to services in Ireland, while just 20% of people have care needs met. A Dutch expert has urged TDs and senators to decriminalise assisted suicide, but not to explicitly legislate for the practice. These stories and more between now and 11. If you want to contact the show, you can do so by text or WhatsApp 86 658 or you can email, as always, and the email address is michael at lmfm.ie. First this morning, delegates of the Garda Representative Association voted for strike action on the 10th of November and have warned that other members of the force may follow. Rank-and-file Garda have threatened a strike on that day in a row over rostering. The decision was taken at a special delegate conference in Gilkenny and comes two weeks after 99% of GRA members voted no confidence in the Garda Commissioner, Drew Harris. Now, they also voted not to work overtime on Budget Day, that's the 10th of October, and Halloween, the 31st of October. They'll do the same on the 3rd, 17th and 24th of that month. Joining us for more on this and for more details on what exactly it's going to happen is Tara McManus, Assistant General Secretary with the GRA. Uh, Tara, thanks for taking our calls. Let's deal with the specifics of this and start with the 10th of November. Will it be tools down day that day? Who will be manning the barricades, as it were? Good morning, Alan, um, and good morning to your listeners. I suppose the important thing to note about the 10th of November is is that we have actually said in our statement if there is no change in the Garda Commissioner's decision to revert us to the Westminster roster, at that stage, our delegates yesterday have decided that he or she would withdraw their labour on the 10th of November. So I suppose it's the third in three different steps um, that we have decided to take. Um, and obviously we would be hoping that it won't come to that. Um, and if it does come to that, it would be each individual member of Angarda Siakana making a decision to actually withdraw their labour. Certainly as an association, we are not directing our members to do that. It's a personal decision that each member of Angarda Siakana would make. However, we would be hopeful that before that happens, that there should be some meaningful engagement from the Commissioner. Um, and, and let's just go back and, and say that this 
this is not something that a decision that we have come to likely. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that, Tara, but yeah. there's just a couple of things I need to tease out in relation to what was um, agreed yesterday in Kilkenny. My understanding is the delegates who were there have agreed they will not turn up on the 10th. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. Okay, so they obviously can't compel other members of rank and file Garthi to walk out, but presumably they will follow suit. Hence, the 10th will be D-Day in terms of very little action happening on the part of the Garthi. That's a fair assessment, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It would be. As, as, as okay. you correctly said, you know, other delegates cannot compel members of Angarity across the country to withdraw their labour okay. on a particular day. I just want to, uh, and you made the point as well, that it will only happen in the context of no movement around your disagreement over rosters being introduced by Drew Harris. Now, 99% of your members have no confidence in him. The relationship between the GRA and the commissioner is irreparable, and that's your words, not mine. So how is it possible to do business with, number one, a man you've no confidence in, and number two, a relationship that's irreparable, dysfunctional? So in reality, we're facing a day of action on the 10th. Well, look, as I said already, we're hoping that it won't come to that. Um, our General Secretary and our President are due to have a meeting with the Commissioner in the next 10 minutes. Um, and, you know, obviously it could be the first meeting they'll have had with him since this announcement was made. And, you know, we would hope that there would be some movement. But, I mean, this comes after a very long time of going back and forth. It comes after over 64 days of negotiations, trying to sort out the roster. It comes um, from us formally writing to him and asking him to move that date to 6th November. And our rationale for doing that is quite clear. Um, if we have, even if we arranged or if we agreed on a roster in the morning, our association would still need at least six weeks to conduct the ballot of our members, you know, to, to gauge their opinion on whatever this proposed roster would be. Therefore, the impending date of 6th November always needs to be addressed. As, as long as it's sitting there, it doesn't allow for meaningful, open negotiations. And the Commissioner has been very clear in all his correspondence to us and in the meetings that our General Secretary and our President have attended that I am not moving on that. The roster will change on the 6th of November, regardless of we were still okay. in negotiations or not. So we would think that's unreasonable. If we're still in the middle of negotiations, why would you move people if there's a possibility that another three or four weeks after that a third roster could be decided upon. Can I so ask I you, was there progress, and it has been reported that there was perhaps an impending deal or a deal to be done during talks over the weekend and it collapsed for whatever reason? Did that happen? Yeah, there, there were talks going on, I suppose, in the background over the weekend. Um, and, you know, our President and the General Secretary were very hopeful that we were going to have a positive resolution and that positive resolution would be to, to have the 6th of November removed and that then allowed all four associations to sit down you know in a, in a proper environment have engaging talks and actually come up, come up with um, with a decent roster that, that suits everybody's needs however the commissioner on on Monday was quite clear that's not going to happen um, oh, sorry on Tuesday was mm-hmm. when he had the meeting um, so I suppose all the hope that was kind of building over the weekend that we might be in a position to actually enter these negotiations, you know, with a, with, with a clear with a clear slate, that was just eradicated with one meeting that lasted 
about 10 minutes. So there was severe frustration, disappointment and annoyance. And that happened on the eve of the conference. So, I mean, the timing, you know, the next morning we went into the conference and made this announcement to the entire conference and you could see the frustration and the annoyance in members that were like, you know, we, we've we've hit a brick wall now. Where okay. do we go from here? And that's where these decisions came from. Now, I presume... Um that Gardaí, when they finish their training, they take an oath to ensure that the law is upheld, that they are there to protect the citizens of the state and the state. They're not going to be doing that on the 10th. What do you say to people who may find themselves in difficulty and they need to call 999 and there's nobody there to help them out? Well, look, um, Alan, as I said, we are very hopeful that it's not going to come to that. We really, really are. And, you know, we have about six weeks, you know, in the lead up to that where we will be withdrawn from voluntary um, overtime, where we have the delegates have decided that they're going to continue to work the four on four roster on the 6th of November. Uh, I know for a fact that even last night, messages have been sent from divisional headquarters all across the country looking for people to volunteer for overtime for the 10th of October. Already those messages are coming in and they're looking for huge numbers of people to go up to Dublin and police on the 10th, or sorry, the 10th of October. They're looking for huge numbers already to go up and police on the 10th of October, obviously because of Budget Day and because of the things that we've seen last week at the Doyle and everything else. So you can see quite clearly that our job at the moment is almost being run exclusively on overtime. And that overtime comes from the goodwill of our members who sign up and say, yeah, I'll do the overtime. Um, so I, we, we would be hoping that even the withdrawal of that voluntary overtime for a date as important as the 10th of October okay. will emphasise to, to everybody that our job has been run on overtime because of the lack of resources, because of the retention issue, because of recruitment issues and all the other issues that we have and I think that's important to point out as well. Yeah, we'll, we'll yes, come to those, Tara, but I just I just want to perhaps concentrate on the um, on budget day. It's uh, fast approaching, 10th of October. Now, these uh, events need to be planned for, particularly in the context of what has happened outside the Doyle last week, that presumably you will need a, a number of public order units there. You will need a greater degree of boots on the ground, as it were. So in reality, what can the public expect in terms of the Gardaí policing this event? Will they have sufficient numbers to deal with the, the potential hostility that may occur? You will have the numbers that are normally um, supposed to be working on that particular day. So the, the, the units that are detailed to work as normal on a normal working day will be available. However, there will be no additional resources because our, our members are not going to volunteer for overtime on that particular day. So you will have what's the run of the mill, the normal policing that's supposed to be there on a daily basis. That's what we'll be working on the 10th of October. Now, your uh, president, Brendan O'Connor, called for some common sense to be brought to the situation by the minister, Helen McEntee. Is that the only viable proposition in terms of finding a resolution to this dispute, intervention from the minister? Well, look, it's quite clear that the commissioner is not willing to work with us. It's quite clear that he's not listening to us. Um, You know, our, our... General Secretary described him yesterday as, as having blind inaction and a dogged, single-minded approach, um, which again reiterates our lack of confidence in him. He's not listening. He is not acknowledging that there is a morale issue. He's not acknowledging the frustration and the disconnect that we can see between him and our members. So, I mean, it's very difficult to work with somebody who absolutely refuses 
to acknowledge all of the range of issues that we have been highlighting over the past number of months. So I suppose it, it really is up to the Minister now at this stage. We, we met with the Minister last week. We spoke to her about these issues. We actually handed her a proposed roster that we feel addresses the Commission's concerns and also addresses the needs and the concerns of our own members. Um, so she's very well aware of what the difficulties are. She's OK, but, but you must also understand the difficult position that the Minister is in, that if she is seen to intervene in a meaningful way, she is more or less sidelined the individual who she appointed to oversee the Gardaí. And in fact, she's saying, ain't got any confidence in you if I've got to do this job myself. So it is a tricky position she's in. I absolutely understand she's in a tricky position, but um, our members are in a far more difficult position um, than, you know, than the minister right now. Our members are really frustrated. They're concerned. They're upset. They're, and I said that that ballot two weeks ago, you know, completely acknowledges that, that you know, 99% of GRA members have no confidence in the Garda Commissioner and his leadership and where he's bringing the Garda organisation. So that is a serious concern there. And as you can see from the decisions made yesterday at the delegate conference, that those delegates are prepared to take this to whatever steps they need to in order to actually get that message across. Now, I'm not going to ask you the question because I know you can't answer it because, you know, whether or not you have confidence in him as a leader, you clearly don't, but you're not going to say that you want to get rid of him because that's ultimately the job of the Minister for Justice. However, when the dust settles, and it will at some point, there'll be compromises made, how can you continue to have somebody like Drew Harris at the helm of the organisation when there's no confidence in him amongst the membership, there's no confidence in him to try and resolve disputes within the organisation, He's a wounded duck. Yeah, it, it, is, it is very, very difficult. And as we said yesterday, we feel that that relationship has completely broken down. It has completely broken down now at this stage. Uh, and there's no wiggle room. There's, there's no room for negotiation at all. So we absolutely acknowledge we have a difficult few weeks and indeed a difficult few months ahead of us as an association. But our main concern is our members. They have given us a very clear mandate. They've given us very clear instructions on what they wish us to do as their representative association and as our members we will be putting first and foremost over the next couple of weeks. Just before um, I leave it, Tara, can we just get to the other dates, 3rd, 17th and 24th? That's just a case where members won't be voluntarily putting their hand up to say, yep, I'll do overtime on this day. Is that, that, that's what that's about, isn't it? Yeah, so it's, it's the five Tuesdays in October, the 3rd, the 10th, the 17th, 24th and the 31st. But of course, I've noted the fact that the 10th is Budget Day and of course, 31st is Halloween. So um, the, the other three Tuesdays are, are, are just Tuesdays in the month. But yes, but Halloween is, is another big one again, um, a night that is predominantly placed on overtime as well. And that overtime and the goodwill of our members that, that come in on and do the extra shifts in order to ensure that there is cover around the clock for that day. Yes, it's the five Tuesdays in October. Just to be very clear and very finally, you're not for budging in relation to where you are at the roster. Is that correct? We, As I said, we have our own proposed roster and we feel it, it meets our needs, but it also meets some of the, the major issues that the Commissioner has in relation to resourcing and in relation to, you know, the specialised units in particular. Um, a lot of the chiefs across the country have already outlined how they're going to resource the fifth unit and how they have resourced the fifth unit is they have pulled all their community policing officers out of community policing. They've pulled all their drugs unit officers out of the drugs unit and all their crime task unit officers out of the crime task. 
For one particular example is in Cavan Monaghan. There are currently 15 members attached to community policing. As of the 6th of November, there will be two across an entire division. And that sort of scenario is, is, is all across the country with regards to disbanding of units. And I mean, some of the assistant commissioners have come out and said there will be no disbanding. There has been complete and utter annihilation of those community policing units across the country. And community policing is for us, as an unarmed police force, we would describe it almost as the jewel in the crown of Angardashi Econ, community policing. It's the okay. basis of how we do our job. That particular unit has been completely and utter, utterly annihilated in order to resort that this unit. We leave it there. Tara McManus, Assistant General Secretary with the GRA. Thank you for joining us. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, welcome back to the programme. A review by Alone into housing adaptation grants across the country has highlighted overspending, significant waiting lists, and difficulty in accessing funding for older people and people with disabilities. Now, the three housing adaptation grants are funded to support older people and people with disabilities to adapt or improve their homes to meet their needs to the tune of eighty-three million per annum in total. Well, joining us this morning is Gronia Lachlan, senior policy and advocacy officer with Alone. Gronia, thank. Thanks for taking our call this morning. Um, an overspend being significant, or do we have any understanding of what the overspend was and what the le- waiting lists are? Good morning, Alan. Thank you for having us on. Uh, yes, yeah, so we've done, uh, I suppose, a bit of an investigation across the local authorities over the last number of weeks. And I know yourselves and LMFM have drawn attention to uh, the difficulties in lives, particularly with accessing housing adaptation grants. Uh, we wanted to find out more information uh, just about what's causing the delays and what's going on in general because it's something we're seeing with the older people we work with across the country. Um, in terms of waiting lists, um, there is I, there's hardly a local authority across the country that does not have a waiting list for housing adaptation grants at the moment and some of these are quite significant. So in Loud, uh, Loud actually appears to have the longest waiting list of anywhere in the country at about 562 applicants um, as of the 1st of August. Um, there's also significant overspend, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. in some local authority areas. So Mead, for example, um, had overspent their annual funding um, or over allocated their annual funding uh, by roughly €300,000 by the 1st of August. Um, with 280 applicants on the waiting list in Mead at this point. So this is really significant um, in terms of highlighting the how difficult it is for older people and people okay. with disabilities to access the grants. Let's, let's deal with County Loud then and look at why we have so many on the waiting list. Is that administration? Is it lack of funding? Or is it applications which don't necessarily meet the uh, requirements for the grants? Or is it a combination? Or do we know? So it appears to be a combination. Um, We know that at the moment, Loud isn't accepting applications for the grants um, until January 24, although I know there's hopes to reopen that system sooner. Um, That has closed because of over-demand or over more applications really than can be dealt with and can be met by the funding um, that Loud have for the grants. Um, so that is something that's kind of across the board. But our staff also say um, things like, you know, turnover is high in that department in Lyles County Council. Um, and while the staff are very helpful and very good, it's just very difficult for them to deal with the level of demand for the grants. So it seems to be a mixture there of 
funding um, difficulties and administrative difficulties just in meeting the mm-hmm. administrative demand. Can I ask you, um, clearly there are requirements on the part of individuals with mobility issues and those who may not have serious issues but still nonetheless need grants to ad- adapt their homes. Is it a pecking order? Because it strikes me that somebody with mobility issues may require a stair lift to get upstairs. They may be waiting for years. They may be confined to one part of the house that is just not uh, acceptable to them in terms of what their requirements are. Have you seen cases of that happening? Absolutely. I mean, we've seen older people um, essentially stranded on the upper floors of their homes for months um, on end for want of a stair lift uh, because they've been waiting for the grant to come through. Um, we've seen older people... Uh, we've seen an awful lot of situations where people are trapped inside their homes because they can't uh, get down the steps, for example, outside their homes if there's a couple of steps. Um, in terms of a pecking order, um, local authorities seem to have, or some local authorities at least, um, have priority levels. So priority one, two and three um, for the grants. So uh, they'll you know, they'll rush through priority one applicants that have higher levels of need um, as opposed to priority three. But that seems to vary slightly again um, across the different local authorities. You had an increase of 16%. It's uh, not a huge increase, but it's certainly not one that you'd be uh, turning away from. But you say that's not sufficient considering the shift in population age and the number of individuals who are now coming under um, the scheme who, who require the, um, the, the supports of, of these particular, particular grants. Exactly. And there's been... Increases to the funding for the housing adaptation grants every year for the last number of years. The difficulty is that those increases are in the region of maybe 2% at a time, 2% per year. Um, but So there's been a 16% increase in funding since 2007. Um, there has been a 66% increase in the population age 65 plus in that time. And as we all know, there's also been significant building inflation. We all know and we read about the cost of construction now. And um, we also know there's an awful lot of difficulty uh, for people in actually being able to take up grants that they are offered because the shortfall in them um, is just too large mm-hmm. for them to meet by themselves. Just, um, just, so looking, at this, just looking at this um, dispassionately, I suppose, from a financial uh, perspective, Doing a cost-benefit analysis would suggest that increasing the grants significantly would be better practice than trying to pay for an individual who can't be cared for in their home or look after themselves, who then has to be sent in to a nursing home long term. That surely makes uh, economic sense that we put more money in rather than spending more on nursing homes for putting individuals into them. This is exactly it. So nursing homes, um, in terms of you know cost per week, it's upwards of one thousand euro per week um, for somebody to stay in a nursing home. And there are people, of course, there are people with significant needs um, who need to be in nursing homes to get the level of care and support that they need. But there's also such a large cohort of people who could live happily and securely at home if that home was adapted to their needs. 
Um, so, for example, alone, um, the highest need for people with who need housing adaptation grants um, is installing accessible bathrooms and bathroom adaptations so that, you know, for example, they can walk into their shower um, that it's usable for them. Um, we also know that the highest rate of falls um, in the home happens in your bathroom. So there's things like this that um, it makes sense to support people uh, financially to adapt their homes to their needs. And it's also where people generally want to be. Uh, people want to age and live in their homes for as long as possible. Um, and to in somewhere they've often been all their lives. And if people can be supported to do that in a way that is of financial benefit, um, you know, as opposed to going into a nursing home, we don't understand why um, that need is not being met. Just before um, I let you go, Gronia, I just want to ask you about the evidence and there's very clear data there to show that the population is getting older there'll be greater needs which uh, the government will have to provide for an aging population are we future proofing now or is it a case of well let's plan for when it happens from a loans perspective we would say that there needs to be uh, significantly higher levels of planning for our aging population um, we see that there's planning going on for example um, in the Department of Social Protection and there's a lot of talk about future-proofing our pension system, for example. Um, but we're not seeing the same level of planning in relation to housing um, and in provision of things like housing with support, uh, various uh, different types of housing that meet the, the varying needs of older people. Um, housing adaptation grants, we know that there is a review of housing adaptation grants that is due to be published. It was actually due to be published before the end of 2022, uh, but has not yet been uh, been published. We believe it's ongoing and, you know, on the way, hopefully quite soon. Um, but this is something that we need to be moving a lot faster on because the need is there now. If we can't meet the needs of older people today, uh, how are we going to meet the needs of a significantly okay. higher population of older people in the years to come? Very good. Gronia Lachran, who is Senior Policy and Advocacy Officer Worth Alone. Thank you for joining us. Before I take a break, I just want to get to some of your comments. And uh, there's quite a few, particularly in relation to the GRA decision to take a, a form of action uh, in the month of October and into November. Uh, Paul says it's a very strong move on the part of the Gardaí and say fair play to the rank and file for taking this course of action. Hopefully they will follow through with it. Stand together and withdraw services. Workers can't be bullied by strong management tactics, no matter their profession. Sarah thinks the guards are absolutely right to take action. She says she fully supports them. Why shouldn't they strike for better working conditions? Why are they seen as being different from any other profession? Every sector has a right to strike, and uh, if this is their only course of action, then so be it. Ian says, why can't the government, or uh, why c- could the government uh, show a bit of sense and sack Harris? Why are they so loyal to him despite his unpopularity? He can easily be let go and replaced. He's a bureaucrat that's not needed. The guards are needed. Time for government to cop themselves on and sort out this mess. Tommy was in touch to say the force is on its knees. Drew Harris has lost the dressing room and needs to be replaced. 
Uh, of course, the government won't sack him because they will have to admit they got it wrong. Minister McEntee is running the risk of losing the dressing room as well if she doesn't wake up and smell the coffee. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. WhatsApp 0861800658 or email michael at lmfm.ie. A third of people with dementia don't have access to services in Ireland, while just 20% of people have care needs met. And you report one of the largest carried out on the experience of dementia in Ireland by the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland also found that there's a major shortfall among carers, with 26% saying they do not have access to the services they need, and 52% reported only having access to some services. The findings have prompted the ASI to call for the publication of the HSE Model of Care for Dementia in Ireland plan. Research and Policy Manager with the ASI, Dr Lorna Philbin, joins us this morning. Uh, Doctor, good morning. Thanks for taking our call. Before we get to the actual survey, can you talk us through the HSE Model of Care for Dementia in Ireland plan? Have you seen that report? Good morning, Alan. Yes, so the Model of Care is a published document. Um, it was published back in May and it sets out targets and practice recommendations to advance the diagnosis, the treatment, the care and the support of people with dementia and their families. So it's, it's there for the full journey of dementia and it's a really ambitious model. It's a really exciting model. We're really fortunate to have it. And now we have to turn to actually having the funds to implement that model. Well, that's my next question. It could be far-reaching and ambitious, but if we don't have the funds to implement the recommendations, it will gather dust on its shelf. That's the fear, always has been with these reports. Yes, absolutely. And look, just last week, uh, Minister Mary Butler did announce funding for memory assessment and support services throughout rural Ireland, which is brilliant. You know, that is a part of the model of care. But what we need to look at here is the whole spectrum of dementia because, you know, as our, as our report has found, people are struggling to access services. So those post-diagnostic supports, we have some, but, but we just don't have enough. Unfortunately, there is a, a growing gap now between service provision and need. So we really need to see more funding in the HSE National Service Plan for the implementation of this model. Now, a third, that is a worrying figure it's very sizable and there's a third of people out there who are perhaps not getting the level of care that's required for the condition because the services aren't there. So can we ascertain what the implications of the non-availability of services are for that third of dementia sufferers? Yeah, absolutely. So what we, need, what we really need to do is have kind of a, a mapping exercise done and that is one of our recommendations to look at what services we have available what services are there, and then look at what services we need to implement. But for example, you know, a lot of people spoke to us about the administrative burden in trying to to access services. So not just that the services aren't there, but they're spending hours of their time filling out forms, making phone calls. And then in some cases, they might finally have access to actually, you know, getting certain hours of home care. But there's a home care staffing crisis, so someone could be allocated 20 hours a week, but they are not getting those hours. Purely because there is nobody available to deliver that? Yes, absolutely. We are we are living through a home care staffing crisis at okay. the moment, so we just do not have enough home care workers. Right. There's another aspect to this story, and that is from the perspective of the carer. In terms of percentages, what are they getting? Are their needs being fulfilled? No, family carers are, are struggling as well. They feel like they do not have access to services. You know, we found really worrying statistics. So 34% of carers are struggling with their physical health and 42% are struggling with their mental health. Again, 43% have visited a healthcare professional in the past month on account of their health. And what's really 
difficult, I think, at this time is that all of this is set against the backdrop of the cost of living crisis. You know, the cost of living is increases and so, is increasing, and so too is the cost of caring. So, fifty percent of carers are having difficulty making ends meet, but actually one in ten are having great difficulty making ends meet. So, this means that they are letting their mortgage go into arrears. They're not able to pay their bills. They're relying on loans from family members, and they're eroding their own savings. And that is hugely, hugely worrying. It's just compounding the stress and compounding the difficulties that they're experiencing. And another aspect of this that needs to be addressed is that in some instances there is one family member who's the carer who has no support from other family members and the burden that they have to take on is onerous and will have implications for their health mentally and physically. Absolutely, yeah. And I think what's really important to say is, you know, that the burden that family carers are feeling, that's not caused by the person living with dementia, that's caused by a lack of services and a lack of support in the local area. You know, people are really passionate about their communities. In Ireland, we're so lucky we have such a vibrant and welcoming community atmosphere here, but people are still feeling lonely. You know, in the last week, people with dementia who responded to our survey said over 50% have felt lonely in the last week even though they're, they're out living in their communities. But, but what we really need to do is we need to scale up and we need our communities to be more dementia-inclusive. But again, we just need funding and services and support. You can have all of the goodwill in the world, and we're lucky here in Ireland. We do support each other, but we need sustained funding and support to really make this work. What about the levels of dementia in Ireland? Are we seeing an increase uh, over the past, we'll say, decade? Or where is the figure going to land in the next decade? Yeah, so there's about 64,000 people living with dementia in Ireland today. That figure has gone up and it is projected to increase over 150,000 by 2045. So, yes, we have this rising prevalence. We have growing need. And so now, again, it's this gap, this gap between need and services is just getting larger and larger. So that is why we need sustained funding. And look, the government, they have invested in dementia in recent years but because we're coming from, from such a low base, there's a historical culture of scarcity there. So there's a huge amount of, of ground to make up, and, and that's what we really need to do now. You know, back in 2020, 2021, I wrote a report on the experience of living with dementia during COVID-19. And what's really upsetting is I actually could have written a very similar report today as, as with COVID-19. And that's when all the services were closed, but people are still experiencing the same issues because there's just not enough services. The services that we do have are brilliant. The people who work in them are amazing, but we just need to scale up. Very good. We leave it there. Research and Policy Manager with the ASI, Dr. Lorna Philbin. Thank you for joining us. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. 86 658 if you want to WhatsApp or text us, email michael at lmfm.ie. A Dutch expert has urged TDs and senators to decriminalise assisted suicide, but not to explicitly legislate for the practice. Professor Theo Boer from the Netherlands told the Oireachtas Committee on Assisted Dying that he has switched from being moderately supportive of the Dutch euthanasia law to now being increasingly critical. Well, somebody who sits on that committee is uh, Gino Gallagher, People Before Profit TD, and joins us uh, live this morning. Uh, Deputy, good morning. Thanks for taking our call. Uh, the committee met a couple of days ago. What was discussed at it? Well, this is this is one part of uh, the committee in relation to looking at the international context of assisted dying. So, um, Professor Bohr 
and a member of Dignitas, which is a Swiss organization that, you know, uh, makes people, I suppose, you know, assisted dining is available to non-residents uh, outside Switzerland. So they give, I suppose, statements to the committee in relation to um, those that can avail of assisted dining. Obviously, Professor Barr has a critique in relation to um, assisted dining in Holland. Some of it I don't agree with in relation to his critique. Um, but obviously, he he still, I mean, it's important to say that he still supports assisted dining, if you look at the statement. Mm-hmm. But he's, he's, he's a critic of um, the current system in Holland. Now, there's obviously variations, Alan, in relation to assisted dining across the world. There's more, you know, some of the Benelux countries, which are Luxembourg, Belgium, have a more kind of liberal kind of regime for those that can avail of assisted dining. And then there's other countries that essentially, since they introduced the system design, whether it was 20 years ago or two years ago, have essentially, the criteria has stayed generally the same. And there hasn't kind of been a kind of, kind of, a kind of an incremental uh, increase for those that can avail of system. So there is lots of variations. Uh, and obviously the committee can learn from all their variations and lessons where, you know, some countries kind of, you know, I wouldn't say got it wrong, but maybe have learned lessons from in relation to, you know, the system that they had put in place. So it's it's very informative and, um, you know, it's for all those that are on the committee, whether they, you know, disagree with assisted dying or agree with assisted dying. So it's, it's just far, it's very informative. What's your view, albeit anecdotally, is there an, an appetite, do you think, for something akin to assisted dying being introduced, albeit with caveats? I think so, Alan. I think all you know opinion polls suggest uh, that assisted dying by a clear majority, um, people would like to see a change in the legislation. So, I think. I mean, the opinion polls that have been done in recent times, three quarters of people would want a change in the law. So we've moved on. I think this issue uh, was, I suppose, a number of years ago would have been quite a taboo issue. And there would have been a variety of uh, kind of opinions. And there still is, you know, there still is. But I think there's a clear majority in the public. So the public are always ahead of politicians as legislators such as us. So hopefully, uh, with the kind of when the committee runs its course, uh, it will give its recommendation in March next year. And I would hope, as a member of that committee, that it will recommend less of change. Now, then it's up to the government uh, to take the next step. But I think it's time we have... We're having this debate. You know, it's a complex debate. It can be very kind of, it can be difficult, regardless of kind of what kind of opinions you have on us. But I think it's 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 a worthwhile debate, and hopefully, uh, we will see the law change in, in Ireland, where assisted dying can be made available under certain circumstances. You know, now, like here's here's the rub, though, models. Gino. Here's the rub. We say under certain circumstances, this is a legislative minefield, a nightmare for anybody who's going to take this on, given all the caveats that need to be in any form of legislation. And I think of one in particular. For example, let's suppose you had a relative who was suffering from dementia, something we only discussed a few Mm. minutes ago on the programme. There could be a case for some of their carers to come forward and say, well, you know, I think under the circumstances that Mary or Joe is probably better off going through the the process of assisted dying because the life they have 
is not a life. Yeah. There's no quality of life no. there. That's a dangerous no, Alan, that, road to go. No, but that could never... There's no, there's no jurisdiction in the world that is, that is allowed to happen. And that's not what assisted dying is. Assisted dying is those, you know, that may be in a situation where they're terminally ill or, you know, extremely sick and so forth. And they have to have capacity. If they don't, somebody else can't make it, that decision for them. So we'll, we'll never, we won't have a situation where you've said um, that, you know, assisted dying could be kind of legislated mm. in that form. That's not possible. That's just not, that's not, no, there's no country in the world that has okay, that. Okay, but somebody have to be terminally ill to avail of the process. For example, if somebody was um, in a horrific car crash and they were quadriplegic, for example, yeah. but they were still compass mentis, I mean, could they avail of assisted dying? Um, in some countries, they can. Um, I mean, obviously, in the New Zealand model, you would have to be terminally, terminally ill. So that's that model is somebody that has that is deemed six months or less of their life to live. What about and the I- Irish solution? Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. ...to an Irish problem, you know, make it easy for somebody to leave this country to go to another jurisdiction where they can avail of a service. So therefore, we yeah. don't have to deal with it. Well, that's already happening on Dignitas. Yeah, we know, we know it's happening in Dignitas, but I mean, it could be made a lot easier for people to avail of it. Yeah, I, well, that's why I think it should be legislated for. I mean, 12 people have, have gone to Switzerland in the last 20 years. Another, there's been other cases, Alan, and 40, where people have taken their own life because of the circumstances they're in. Um, and that probably goes un- unreported in relation to circumstances that people may find themselves in. But I, I firmly believe that we need to legislate for this. Mm. Just to be uh, very clear, Gino, just to be very clear for our listeners, right? Suicide was decriminalised in Ireland in 1993, but assisted yeah. suicide remains an offence 
on the statute. Yeah. This is our problem yeah. and, and the disconnect. Yeah, and obviously if any kind of, if there's legislative change to happen, that, has, that law needs to change in relation to assisting. Obviously, if the legislation was introduced tomorrow about voluntary assisted dying, um, at the moment, if you assist somebody in their suicide, you can go to prison up to 14 years. Um, but if voluntary assisted dying was legislated for, uh, you would have to change the parameters of that legislation. As in, you know, if, if legislation was introduced, you'd need uh, medical professionals and others to partake in that circumstances where somebody, you know, makes a decision that says, that says look at... Well, well there, had, there, has, there has to be oversight and fail-safe mechanisms course, there. You have yeah. to have more than one, I presume, doctor, more than one yeah. psychiatrist, psychologist, whatever it may be. That yeah. requires a lot of work, a lot of thinking, and a lot of foresight, which we're not good at in this country. No, but, you know, it can be done. It's been done in other countries. And once you have safeguards and regulations, it's much better than we have now. And, Alan, I always, you know, you draw, you, you bring yourselves back five, six years in relation to the debate around abortion. You know, uh, it was quite a very divisive debate. But now we have legislation to stop you know, women being forced to go abroad and so forth. So it can be done. Legislation can be done. On do, do you think, Gino, as a nation, we're ready to embrace this? I think so, Alan. I think, I think you would be surprised how many people on compassionate grounds, and really leave the religion now for a moment, right? And I understand why people would oppose assisted dying, okay? For all sorts of reasons. Moral reasons, ethical reasons, medical reasons. All that, I understand that. But put yourself in the shoes of somebody that may want to have that choice. The vast majority of people, if they're in that circumstances, will never want available assistance under any circumstances. But there are those that need, you know, should have a choice. In and in order to do that, you need to change the law because if you don't change the law, we're going to be kind of, you know, we're going to be stuck where we are. And we can change the law. You know, we've done it before on other issues around, you know, marriage equality, around abortion, yeah. around divorce, where, you know, but I really think, Alan, if you ask a lot of people, majority of people will say, look, okay, I may not kind of avail of it. I may, I may even oppose it for all sorts, but I wouldn't deny somebody else to avail of assisted dying in certain circumstances. Okay, and Gino, in, 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 in the course of your deliberations and meetings with various stakeholders at the um, committee, have you spoken to anybody who wants to avail of assisted dying or is going through the process of it? I have. And what have they been yeah. saying to you? And no, no doubt you were moved by their stories, but perhaps you may, you may be able to share their thoughts with us. Yeah, I mean, I've I spoke to a number of people that are kind of, if, if the legislation was changed, they would avail of it. Um, and some people you know, are in circumstances where they're thinking of going to Switzerland. Um, And then there's some people that want the comfort of knowing that if the last months become extremely difficult, extremely difficult, and there's all, there's a likelihood that this could happen in relation to their illness, that at least they want some comfort in relation to control of how they die. And Alan, I think that's a fundamental human right where somebody says, 
I do not want to go through months of particularly difficult debt. Now, obviously, palliative care and hospice care is very good in this country, and but there is certain situations where they cannot ameliorate certain kind of circumstances to their kind of condition. And in that circumstances, somebody should have a right and a choice to say, look, I do not want to go through that. And I know a number of people that are in them circumstances that want to have a choice. They may not even, actually, they may not even go through with the procedure. Mm -hmm. And that's the comfort of that, okay, if things get complicated and bad, I want to choose my date and my choice in relation to my life. And I think, again, that's why, I think that's why I think public opinion has changed over the last number of years in relation to this. And we have to look at this as a kind of a human rights issue um, and an issue that I think that we need to change the law in relation to, you know, progressing, uh, you know, those that can avail of us to die. Whatever about a human right, it's about one's dignity, one having a dignified yeah. life, a meaningful life. And if that is taken from you, you, you ultimately will have to, you would course, like Alan, to think you have Alan, a choice. Alan, it would go to anybody's mind, anybody's mind. If you're in a situation where, you know, you've, and I know I have a very good friend at the moment that is in this situation, and it's extremely difficult, extremely difficult, you know, regardless of if this time as a legislator or not, it's extremely difficult. Um, and, you know, you wouldn't be human not to think that in this circumstances, I'm thinking about months and weeks and days how my life is going to pan out. And, you know, in them circumstances, and again, where assisted dying has been legislated for in different countries, you know, the evidence is that the majority, actually the majority of people that can avail of assisted dying, some, actually the majority don't even avail of it. It's just that kind of comfort, knowing that they have a choice in relation to having control over the last, you know, months or weeks in the earth. And I think that, and I know it's a very difficult subject even to talk about, but I think in them circumstances, somebody should have a choice in relation to how they leave this earth. Gino Kenny. With the friends and families. Okay, Gino Kenny, People Before Profit, thank you for joining us this morning. Before we go to a break, I just want to get through more of your comments because there are uh, quite a number of them in relation to the item we had on the Gardaí. Margaret can't believe that the government have allowed the discord between rank and file and Drew Harris to get to this point. There's no way it should have been allowed to fester for as long. Clearly, Harris has lost the confidence and respect of members, and once that's gone, the only option for him is to resign. He cannot turn this around, and for him or the government to think otherwise is ludicrous and irresponsible. Mary didn't think that the guards were allowed to take part in strike action. Well, they're not really. They're not saying it's strike action. We'll be in charge of policing on the days that strike action is happening. It's uh, a sh- Sorry, who will be, is the question she put. It's a very simple, Jim says. Harris has to go. He is clearly unpopular among members and his arrogant approach of uh, brazening this out is only putting people's back up further. Minister McEntee needs to take def- decisive action and get rid of him. It's the only way of sorting out the mess. Colin said, uh, isn't one bit surprised that uh, Garthi have decided to take strike action? They tried the negotiation route and have been met by a stone wall. Harris is resolute that he's not for turning. 
Well, maybe a few days of strike action and the resulting chaos will make him reconsider his my way or the highway approach to the particular problem. Sheila says, get rid of Harris for his mismanagement of this dispute. Get rid of Minister McEntee for her mismanagement of Drew Harris and start with a clean slate, problem solved, she says. Tommy says, Drew Harris is weeding out the bad apples and that's what is upsetting the rank-and-file members. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back. The Irish Medical Organisation has warned that radical reform is now the only viable option for a health system that has been chronically underfunded and under-resourced for decades. The INMO launched its uh, pre-budget submission today and it said it was imperative the government focus on two key areas in next month's budget. Well, joining us this morning is John Cannon, Dr John Cannon, President of the IMO uh, on the line this morning. Dr Cannon, good morning. We'll get to those two crucial issues that we outlined at the outset, but perhaps we could talk just for a moment about the overrun in budgetary spend in the Department of Health, which is now going to be north of a billion somewhere in the region of a billion and a half if we're to believe reports. The expectation was somewhere between 750 million and a billion. That is just, it's eye-watering. Yeah, well, I, I suppose, you know, that, that we have a we have a, a growing population, we have growing demand, we're expanding the models of care, we're changing the models of care, how we do medicine in this country with Slauncher Care, and uh, obviously, you know, the service, the health service is increasing year on year, but the truth of the matter is that the funding that the health service gets every year, it, it's not enough to keep up with the growth and demand. And in fact, it's probably a little less to keep up with the growth. And when you add in the fact that for the last 10, 10, 12 years, there's been underfunding since the austerity uh, after the banking collapse, we, we actually have a massive deficit. Mm. And we probably even need about 10 to 12 years of catch-up funding um, to get us back on par. And the effect of that has been, uh, you know, a really... Uh, tragic loss in, in capacity in our health service. You know, we had more beds 20 years ago than we have now. Um, and if you look at Ireland's, Ireland's bed capacity compared to our EU colleagues, we're, we're not at the top of the bed charts. We're not at the middle. We're actually down near the bottom. OK, so what, uh, what so we're talking about in essence here is gross mismanagement of an organisation. For if that was in the private sector and we were running deficits, as the Department of Health do annually, and a deficit of this magnitude, it would be closed down and started again. Yeah, well, I suppose it's the Department of Health and the HSE to, to manage their budget. I mean, as advocates for the Irish people and Irish doctors, it's, it's, our, it's our job to say what we need for a safe, uh, functioning health service, a uh, compassionate health service that's free at the point of care, where when people are sick and they're in need, that they can get access to hospital medicine or their GP, and they're not left on it. Yeah, but, but you can't get what you want with all, Yeah, you can't get what you want with all due respect, Dr. Cannon, unless you have a fit-for-purpose model that you can go to and get the requirements, the funding, or whatever it is you need in order to implement what your what your needs and wants are. So we have yeah, to go back to a, a fundamental look at the management of the health system. Yeah, and I think that's a I think that's definitely a question for government and for the HSE um, and how the, the health service is structured and, and modelled and, and they set policy um, and they, they decide on the model of care as it's set out in their, the legislation that's recently slashed care and, and they're looking to change that. It's, it's our role to make sure that it's done in a, in a safe manner for, for patients okay. and a safe manner for, for doctors. Two particular key areas you want uh, addressed, what are they? So the first is a, is a, is a workforce plan. We, we don't have a workforce plan at the moment. Um, 
you know, we need to look at the number of specialists that we need, so consultant specialists, surgeons or, or, or doctors, and then the other side of GPs as well. And, and we need to align that with the, the future demographic of the country. We were a country of over 5 million people now. In a couple of years, you know, the number of people over the age of 65 is going to cross the million mark. And, and we're going to have a huge jump in the demand uh, for hospital services and for GPs. So, you know, we've been warning about this for, for, ten, for, for 10 years or more about the cuts, but, but now we really need to, to look at the sort of the tsunami of care that's coming in, in the next sort of in the next 10 years. And we need to put redundancy back into the system mm. right now. So, I mean, and we, a proper workforce plan, mm. and that means hospital beds, it means infrastructure. You, you talked about a tsunami, but we also have to deal with the tsunami of well-qualified individuals who are trained here and decide to leave, bring their expertise and resources with them. How, how yeah. do you plug that gap? And look, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, you know, the more people that, that, that find conditions hard in Ireland and move to Australia and, and Canada, the harder it's going to get for the people that are left behind. And uh, like I said, it, it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. We need to really focus on the retention, the retention piece. We need to improve the quality of, of life for the staff in our health service. And we need to create a you know, healthy working environment for them and in the hope that they will stay and that we can start to attract some of our specialists, both doctors and nurses, back from Australia and Canada and New Zealand. And the reason they're going there is because, you know, those health services give them the opportunity to, to work to the fullest of their potential, to the fullest of their training. And it also allows them to have a somewhat healthier work-life balance, which we definitely do not have in Ireland at the moment. Now, it's not just about um, paying conditions for healthcare professionals. There's so many other moving parts to this problem. And one, I suppose, is housing. One is quality of life. One is moving up the ladder. And one is looking at an organisation, perhaps, where they see opportunity for them. They don't really stack up in this country for anybody who wants to stay as a health professional, do they? Well, I think there's additional stresses that comes with taking on a health a health role, a vocational role, such as doctor or nurse. And uh, certainly for young doctors, young doctors have to move house every every six months to every year. Um, so certainly in a housing crisis, that's not ideal. It's impossible to get a six a six month lease from anyone. Never mind how to find a house in the first place. So giving young doctors the security of location, knowing that they could set up a primary residence in one location without being moved every six months, that would certainly um, uh, take a bit of the sting out of um, our, our immigration problem. Uh, particularly for young young doctors and uh, that have young families, they might have a primary residence in Dublin where their spouses and their children, and then they might be asked to move to Letterkenny for six months. So, so that's certainly a problem that's being exacerbated by by the housing crisis. Um, and obviously, as well, childcare is a massive issue for the for the entire for the entire country, and I accept that we have a crisis there. But you know, doctors in particular and nurses, we don't work nine to five. You know, we work seven to seven. And when patients are sick and the bleep is going off and there's an emergency, you can't leave the hospital. You have to stay. You have to take care of people. Um, and no one would do that. Um, it, it would be morally and, and, and ethically um, uh, wrong to do that. So we stay. And that puts young doctors um, with families and indeed uh, consultants and all doctors with families in a, in a precarious position, especially when childcare facilities work on you know a nine to five or nine to six basis. So, you know, childcare is another issue, and we're you know we have a feminisation of the medical workforce. The majority of, of of new young doctors are women. Yeah, we have a system that's built built essentially for men. We don't take into account that young women will will have children and will need time away from work to care for children. And then when they come back, it, it should it should be that they are able to come back and and 
have every possible success in their career. And there's a lot of legacy inequalities in the system that really makes it hard for young female doctors with children. Now, you say that the government has a chance to do what successive governments have failed to do Mm -hmm. for decades, implement radical reform of our health system for the good Mm -hmm. of patients. We're dying Mm -hmm. to hear how they're going to do that. So what's your take on it? Yeah, well, I do think you need a generational level of investment. Like I said, there's been at least a decade of underfunding in the system. So there needs to be, you know, there needs to be a massive amount of catch-up funding to get us back to a level, a level playing field, to a reasonable starting point. And then we need additional funding to put some redundancy in the system. There is zero redundancy in the system at the moment. Our, our hospitals are, you know, working at somewhere between 90 and 105% bed occupancy, which is completely unsafe. Our, our workforce is constantly working beyond the Organisation Working Time Act and the European Working Time Directive. So, you know, we are burning out because of our workforce. So if you want a healthy workforce that will take care of patients, and if you want, uh, you, know, a re- you know, safe places to see patients, treat them and beds to put them in, then you're going to have to put that catch-up funding back into the system to get us back to normal. And then you're going to have to put a little bit more in to put redundancy back in. If you put 5,000 beds into the system tomorrow, you wouldn't bring us to the top of the charts in Europe. You might bring us to the middle ground. And, and that would be a generational level of beds to put in. So we have to build more hospitals? more. Well, we need to we need to decouple elective care and, and acute care, definitely. At the moment, if someone's on a waiting list for a hip, uh, a hip replacement and, um, you know, there's, there's 20 emergencies coming to the emergency department and they need beds, what will happen is that the person who's been waiting two or three years for the hip replacement will be, will be bumped back and their, their, uh, their surgery will be cancelled or delayed. And that's because we haven't, as of yet, decoupled uh, routine elective procedures uh, from the emergency care. And that needs to happen. So we do need to separate those things. We're waiting for elective hospitals. We've yet to see plans. Okay. We've yet to see them being built. Let me ask you then about Solange Care. Is that the panacea or is that only one part of a greater number of initiatives that are required to get us into rude health? Yeah, look, I mean, that's, that's government policy. And I think there's no doctor in the world that would disagree that, you know, when people need care, and they're in pain, they're suffering, they should have, uh, you know, free care that, that, that's easy to access, that's available when they need it. And that's the aspiration of Solange Care. How we get there in terms of changing our model of care is, is, a, different, is a different kettle of fish. Obviously, we've started that on the GP side with, with uh, you know, increasing the number of people who have doctor visit cards, medical cards. And, and GP in general has been, a, or general practice has been a success story of the last of the last decade. But general practice now has taken on massive amounts of work in sort of chronic disease management and, and taking some of the roles that traditionally would have been done by hospital doctors, we've moved them into the, G, the GP sphere. But general practice isn't the panacea for the entire health service mm-hmm. and, and cannot be seen as cannot be seen as such. And general practice is certainly, you know, dealing with its own capacity crisis at the moment running with, you know, routine appointments in some places, even waiting two or three weeks to see your GP. And, and look, so we're getting to unacceptable levels there as well. So we can't use GP constantly as the release, pressure relief valve for the health service and, and certainly for, for Solange Care. But as a document, as, as a goal, I think, you know, like we, we, we would agree that universal health care is very admirable and it's the fairest way to, uh, to provide health care in any civilised uh, country. Now, we touched on this briefly, but I think it's a very important issue and you hear it time and again from people who are working in in the medical sector and in medical care. Conditions, working conditions, the environment they work in, they're overstretched. Sometimes they are working when they shouldn't be working. How do you address yeah. that? I think you need to put more. First, first of all, you need more staff and then you need the proper infrastructure. 
and you, you can't replace that. At the moment, we're in a situation where the only reason the health service hasn't collapsed is that the staff are working harder, they're working more, and they're keeping it afloat. Otherwise, it sure would have sank a long time ago. So we've got the same amount of butter, and we're spreading it over two pieces of bread, three pieces of bread, uh, and that's what's really burning out our staff. Um, there is a mass attrition rate uh, of people dropping out of medicine, people emigrating, people changing career, uh, people needing you know, uh, extended sick leave or, or mental health leave because the conditions are so poor. Um, it, is, it is a very, very, very tough, demoralising environment uh, to work in. And um, I think until we address that, not only are we going to continue to bleed doctors and nurses to you know, the Australias and Canadas of the world, but those people that are abroad sitting in you know, Perth or, or Auckland looking at the, at the Irish news, they're not going to come home mm-hmm. until they see real positive change and uh, they see that, that those, those factors have been improved because they are in countries where they have reasonable work-life balance and when they go to work, they can perform to their highest ability and that the services and that all of the diagnostics and scans and everything they need to do their job is available. So why would they come back to a system where it's nutritional and it's adversarial and it's, you know, incredibly under-resourced? Do you feel, I suppose, you're probably a realist, and do you feel that you just go through the motions, the IMO, uh, the IMO go through this, you know, year in, year out, nothing changes, default position, no money, can't do anything, mismanagement. You know, we're going to have this conversation again next year. Yeah, I mean, and look, it is Groundhog Day for us. So we will always update our positions. We'll always try to, you know, like give realistic and uh, pragmatic um, solutions to the problem because, you know, we're, we're, we're a doctor-led organisation. So this is the people on the ground, and decide, you know, saying this is what we need. And we're not detached from the, from the real world, uh, you know, making policies away somewhere else. We're, we're the people that are seeing patients dealing with the problems, we're seeing people waiting three, four years for their hip for their hip surgeries or whatever it is, and we're seeing, you know, people struggling to access their public health nurse or their physiotherapist. So, you know, we are we're getting this every day from the people in the hospital and from their patients and our GP services. And yeah, we we are repeating ourselves because we we uh, we have been calling for the last ten years for an increase in funding, and we've been saying that the austerity measures would lead to this, this crippling capacity crisis, and it has come to fruition. Uh, but but at the same time, you know, like we will keep we will we will keep on this because we see that there's a lot of people out there who who need care who are not getting it, and we can't provide it in a compassionate way. So we are hopeful that that some that the the, the government uh, will will realise that. What they've been doing thus far has not been working, okay. and uh, you, we need to change the very, way we've been doing. Things. Very good, Dr. John Cannon, President of the Irish Medical Organisation. Thank you for joining us. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, oh, welcome back to the programme. Three days of action by childcare providers and families, highlighting what has been described as. The dire state of childcare in Ireland ends today. According to the Federation of Early Childhood Providers, 97 childcare providers have closed across the country since March this year due to inadequate government funding, excessive regulation and administration. Chairperson of the Federation, Elaine Dunn, said she's hopeful that the government would move on some of their concerns in Budget 2024. And Elaine Dunn joins us online this morning. Elaine, thanks for taking our call this morning. You're in the West. Um, How have the protests been and what has the level of support you've managed to garner during the past three days? So um, we've had huge support from parents um, nationwide, which is fantastic. Um, I'm actually down in Mayo and Castle Bar here this morning and we've got parents and providers coming together 
to protest and go down to Alan Dillon's office um, in Castle Bar and hand in some documents there. So there's a big protest today in Cork as well, Galway, Donegal, um, Loud. I think there's something going on in Loud as well, Kildare. Um, so there's, it, there's, there's still protests going on as we speak. Mm. And services are also standing outside their own service of parents um, supporting them outside there as well, outside their businesses. Now, you had hoped that one of the consequences of this particular uh, disruption over the past three days would move politicians to a point that they would take you seriously. Now, we know that Roderick O'Gorman met with um, his colleagues in government, with Fianna Fáil, perhaps to try and convince them that the problem is not necessarily with the big operators, but the smaller operators, and they seem to have taken that on board. It, it's positive, I presume, from your perspective, but is it enough? Look, it's absolutely positive um, that they are taking us serious. I mean, it is the small and medium services that are out on the streets. And um, it's important that um, the larger services have come out in support also for us, and which is really good. It's, it's very united. Um, and it's important that we all just keep doing what we're doing. We have another date um, coming up in October, and that will go out publicly next week. It's just a one-day closure um, next month, but it will be everybody up into Dublin from all across the, the counties. I suppose a measure of the success of these particular protests and days of action is the support and levels of, por- of support you get from parents, because there may be a degree of fatigue setting in from their point of view if this is ongoing and they have to take their children out or find alternative uh, care for them or perhaps even take time off work. That's a problem. No, absolutely it is. And we don't want to have to continue to come out and protest. But, I mean, the way we see it is now, if, if we don't do this now, a lot of us will be out of business this time next year. When you say a lot, I mean, there's 97 gone since March. What do you think that number will be in 12 months' time if the status uh, it, quo it, remains? It, it, it will be over five or 600 or more. And, and that really is, and that's the truth. Like, we're watching them, we surveyed the providers... Um, and, and we're watching and you can see like some people are only getting like 13 euros extra week in their core funding. Like three cents an hour is the extra we got in core funding this year. How in God's name are we going to be able to support our businesses on three cents an hour? As a business model, it doesn't work in its present form, but that's just the way business is. And if the bigger operators are providing a service at maybe a cheaper price and squeezing you guys out, that's just business. And we have to accept that that's a real possibility that will happen, that we'll see a situation where it'll be the big providers providing care for our children. Well, a lot of us um, of the small uh, full day carers and part time services, we didn't up our fees since 2017. And you would probably note that some of the larger services would have upped their fees back in 2021. So we're not on a level playing field. And this is why we've never asked for the fee freeze to be lifted. And that was said on the Tonight Show. What we asked was that the fee freeze be lifted so that us, the small and medium-sized services, are allowed to bring our fees up to 2021 rate. I mean, we did right by our parents, and we will always do right by our parents. And that's why I suppose we get the support from them out on the streets and on these three days of closures. You're in, I suppose, an unfortunate situation where you're vying for attention from the public, from the government, when we have the GRA signalling their intent to take action. We have other organisations as well. And there's a danger, I suppose, you'd be left in the wings and nobody really taking you that seriously. That's, that's a problem for you, isn't it? Well, I suppose it could become a problem, but it, would it not be better that we all came out at the one time all together? 
showing that this really is a huge problem within the country and that governments need to take all of us seriously. And what about the view from government, we just don't have enough money to give to everybody what they want and we may not even be able to give them a fraction of what they want. So if we close our doors and you can see that like a lot of parents haven't been uh, able to go into work over the last three days, if we close completely and we're gone altogether, then the economy is going to suffer. It's going to take predominantly women out of the workforce and it means we're going backwards in this country. Backwards meaning what? That we will have, we well, already women, have a situation. Yeah. We will be back at home minding the children. And like a lot of parents don't have that, they're not in that position. They've got high mortgages. They have a cost of living crisis in their own families as well. So they need to work. Do you I feel, mean, we all need to work. Do, do you feel that the government are using the excuse that, well, we have grandparents who look after kids? And we see that happening quite a lot now, that grandparents take up the role of minders of children because they either can't afford crash or there's no crash available to them. Are they using that as an excuse to say, well, it's running OK at the moment, so just let's leave it alone? Well, you know, the grandparents may not be in a position to mind children five days a week. You know, who knows what their situation is? But also, like, you have child minders as well who are also um, supporting the sector by minding children. Can I ask you, have the past three days been a worthwhile exercise? Have you achieved what you wanted to achieve from the three days of protest? Uh, yes, because when you look at the, the support that the crashes around the country and, and Montessori schools around the country are getting from parents and other businesses nationwide, that, that you can see the support is there, which is really good. I mean, we have raised serious awareness that there is a crisis within this sector and, and everybody seems to be talking about it. Everybody knows about it. And it's a campaign, to your mind, that's gaining and gathering momentum, do you feel? Oh, no, absolutely. We're, we're definitely gaining momentum. There's other sectors now coming out, and you can see that um, Ismay as well, they came out the other day and they supported us on the streets of Dublin also, and they have a large number of different sectors within their cohort of membership. Now, you said you will announce next week um, another day of action. Are you prepared to give us that date now? I'm not because we have actually have a meeting on it in the morning and we're just trying to not, we don't want to clash with the other um, dates of protests outside Leinster House either or strikes either. Okay, but Monday we will know what that date is. Yes, absolutely. Okay, Chairperson of the Federation, Elaine Dunn, thank you for joining us this morning. Um, just on that particular story, I suppose it's, it's a separate story but very much intertwined into it. Um, as that nationwide children's providers strike enters its third day, there was a survey which was carried out by, who was it? It was taxback.ie, where it found that over a third of Irish people, 34%, believe that making childcare fees fully tax deductible should be part of the government's budget 2024 strategy to alleviate the financial strain on parents throughout the country. And it was taxback, uh, taxpayers pre budget 2024 survey. Michael Reed on LMFM. Alcohol Action Ireland has launched a new initiative, Voices of Recovery to harness the lived experience of people in recovery from alcohol harm to drive much-needed policy change. The initiative led by people in recovery from alcohol aims to remove the stigma around getting help for alcohol problems and to drive evidence-based policy change on issues such as better alcohol treatment services, curbs on alcohol marketing and holding the alcohol industry to account for the harm its products cause. 
Joining us this morning is Paddy Creedon, board member with Alcohol Action Ireland. Paddy, good morning. Thanks for taking our call. Um, I want to ask you, just before we get to the initiative, how is our relationship with alcohol these days? Is it still dysfunctional? Good, mo- good morning, Alan. Uh, thank you very much, and thank, for, thank you for having me on. Uh, yeah, to answer your question, I suppose we uh, we say about 15% of the population of Ireland is in some level of trouble with alcohol. So, yeah, our relationship is not good with it, yeah, sure. And the age profile covers all ages, does it, or do we see covers it? covers all ages, yeah. I'm afraid, yeah, sure does, from, you know, the real problematic underage drinking, I suppose, right up to uh, senior citizens. Uh, it has no, you know, in the in the recovery world where, where I operate, uh, it has no, you know, defined uh, age cohorts. It's all ages, all genders, yeah, sure. sure. So let's talk about then an, an individual, whether it be male or female, who tries to first of all understand that they have a problem with it, because my idea of a problem and yours may differ quite significantly. Before anything happens, there has to be a recognition on the part of the individual, I have a problem. Whatever about stigma, going to get help, they have to first of all say, I've got the problem. Yeah, and I, I think you know I, I'm I'm in recovery myself for a light, long time, really. I mean, uh, I I put the drink the 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 alcohol down myself back in November 1977. So, uh, and and thank God up today, I'm a very grateful individual, recovered alcoholic. You know, uh, for the life that I have, I sub, you know the 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 question you ask me is, you know, is I think I knew I was in trouble myself. Early enough on, you know, I, I often tell the story that I got married when I was 22. My dad came to me in the, in the, you know, and when you're standing in the church waiting for your bride to come, right, he caught me swinging out, <laughs> swinging out of a bottle of whiskey or something at maybe half ten in the morning. Now, that might have been unusual, but somebody convinced me I should, I need it for the nerves. And he said to me, Paddy, why do you have to drink so much? And was so that, that was, the, was that that moment that you simply was, said? Ah, listen, I didn't, I, I didn't stop drinking. I only, I was only starting, really. Then, you know, it was, I, I am one of the lucky ones, Alan. I, 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 I was, you know, I didn't, I didn't stop the first time I went for help. So I, I, and, and, and I did the second time. So that brings me up to seventy-seven. But going back to your question, nowadays there's, there's, there's some really good tools available and help available. I mean, the, the one that comes to mind straight away uh, is the is the HSE's uh, helpline for that very question. You know, if you think you have a problem with it, and I'd, I'd highly recommend it. Uh, again, you can check the number. I think it's one eight hundred four five nine four five nine, and they're open every five days a week from mm. half nine to half five. Really good, but they also have an absolutely excellent audit tool, which you know you can do it completely anonymously. I did it myself and would you believe this? I sat down about two weeks ago when we were looking at this and I put myself back to where I was because I have a clear line of sight where I was back in 1977, you know, and I I filled up the questionnaire online and it came back absolutely the score blown out of the water, do you know what I mean? So I think there are tools like that that people can do I mean, I know, uh, yeah. I know, and I'm sure you do, Paddy. Lads who could go out maybe once a week, but Friday or Saturday, have seven, eight, nine pints. That's it. I'm grand until next week. Is that a problem? I, I mean, they're, they're, and I suppose the let's let's kind of differentiate between alcohol dependency and alcohol harm, right? So, uh, 
and they're all on that one. So alcohol harm, right, is, I mean, the, the, the numbers in Ireland at the moment is around 600,000 people are drinking way above the, 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 the safety, if there is such a thing as, as, as a safety level. But let's say social drinkers, right? So that's very clear. The World Health Guidelines, you know, and the, are recommending 17 units for a man 11 units of alcohol for a woman spread out over a week. Now, binge drinking is there, like what you mentioned there. Somebody going out to have a nine pints, right? That's a lot of alcohol, right? Uh, one night a week. I don't know many people who would feel well after that, you know. Yeah. Uh, so there's, there's so it's a, a problem, drinking. a problem in a different category, Albert. Listen, but I'm sorry, I'm, I'm watching yeah. the time here. I want to talk about the initiative before we run out of time. Sure. So tell me, sure, what, sure. what's its main uh, premise or what do you hope to achieve with it? I think the big one this came about is, you know, there's a recognition with us in recovery that our lone voices are never heard, but the the voices of recovery, we will speak as one voice as a group. So what we want to achieve really, as you mentioned, some of them literally remove the stigma, improve uh, the, the, the services. And I actually have a connection with Loud there. I've been involved with Smarmore Castle, the treatment centre in Ireland. Oh, right, OK, yeah. 2014. And I'd love to mention here because four of the people of the 10 people who signed up to the charter are have a connection with, with Smarmore. So here's a brand new service that came in and I think it opened on January 2015. It now has capacity up to 35 beds brilliantly led by the clinic manager there, Keith Cassidy, who's also signed up to our, uh, our, our our charter, right? And it's open to everybody. So there's universal access. So health insurance, HSE patients, all of that. So the services are there, I suppose, is what I'm saying, Alan. And, and, and maybe not enough of them at times. Yeah. And definitely maybe not, you know, when you mentioned there early on, when people have, uh, you know, they know they're in trouble, you need to get them to see somebody quickly. Okay, Patty, for anybody who wants to take that step but doesn't know how to or needs a little bit of help, who should they contact? Well, Where should they go? I, 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 I think, first of all, can I recommend alcoholisland.ie? All, all, everything about this particular initiative is up there now, right? And we're looking for people to come on and people in recovery to, to support us and families and friends and all that who support what we're doing come on and you can do that so you'll get a, a load of information there about where you should go particularly can i just mention again hse's uh audit tool and self-assessment and their phone number uh, and as i said for memory it's 1-800-459-459 i hope i'm right on that one alan right <laughs> If you're not, you're in trouble, Patty. <laughs> I might not have been real trouble, right? <laughs> but I, I can't emphasize enough, you know, because people will be listening today and say, God, I really do need to do something about it yeah. now, this minute. Okay, Paddy, Paddy Creighton, board member with Alcohol Action Ireland. Thank you for joining us. That brings to an end our programme for this Thursday morning. I'm back with you again tomorrow morning, a little bit after nine on the Michael Reed Show. But for now, from me, Alan Cantwell, good morning. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
and United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.